12 years in the saddle for law and order on the frontiers of Texas by Sergeant W.J.L. Sullivan, Texas Ranger. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Chapters 10 through 17. Chapter 10. An Exciting Fisticuff. Colonel R.D. Hunter wrote to Captain S.A. McMurray of our company, asking him to let me have a leave of absence to go to Thurber to attend to some anarchists and dynamiters who were giving the officials a lot of trouble at the mine. He said, in his letter to Captain McMurray, that he would give me $100 a month to act as an officer for the company and rid the mine of these characters. The captain showed me the letter, and asked me if I thought I could do the work. I told him that I was perfectly confident that I could. He then asked me if I wanted to go and try it, and I told him that that hundred dollars looked mighty good to me. He gave me permission to go, and I left on the next train for Thurber, and reached there as quickly as possible, and made a contract with Hunter to do the work which he had mapped out for me. I remained in the employ of the coal company eight months. One night, about twelve o'clock, I located 13 anarchists in one bunch, hidden in a little dark corner, planning to dynamite the mine the following night. I had two men with me, and we crawled up close enough to hear every word that these anarchists said. When they had perfected their plans and stopped their discussion, we arrested the whole bunch and jailed them. A saloon was run at the mines by Tom Lawson, who had a 10-year lease on the building. Lawson also owned a fourth interest in the mine, but he and Colonel Hunter, the president, had a fallen out for some cause, and Lawson got to standing in with the tough element. One night I heard a pistol shot in the saloon and ran in there to investigate, believing that somebody had been killed. When I reached the inside, I learned that Lawson, who was behind the bar drunk, had shot at a miner, but failed to hit him. This was on pay night, and everybody was full of beer and whiskey, and I had already filled the calaboose with drunken men. I decided to arrest Lawson and put him in with the other men, but when I advanced on him, he made a play for his six-shooter, but I fell squarely on top of him with my gun, removing enough skin from his head to half-sole a number ten shoe. He swore that he would not be locked up, but I put him in the calaboose all the same, and he was made to pay his fine as any other man. After paying his fine, Lawson left immediately to report me to Captain McMurray. Colonel Hunter saw Lawson in Fort Worth looking for McMurray and wired me about it, saying that he, Hunter, would stand between me and all danger. About two weeks after that, Captain McMurray came to Thurber and told me that he understood that I had knocked Lawson in the head and that he wanted to know the cause of it. I told him that Lawson was disturbing the peace and that he had shot at a miner, and when I tried to arrest him, he attempted to drop a gun on me and that I hit him with my six-shooter instead of shooting him with it. I disarmed him and put him in jail, I continued, and my captain replied that I ought to have broken his neck. About two months after that, Lawson and his bartender, Malcolm, and Colonel Hunter, all three met in a drugstore. Hunter and Lawson began cursing each other, and I heard the row and rushed into the store just in time to see Hunter burst the bottom of a spittoon out over Tom Lawson's head. Hunter then threw a box of cigars at him, striking Lawson in the ear and scattering cigars all over the floor. I noticed Malcolm slipping up behind Colonel Hunter, preparing to hit him in the back of the head. 
Just as he started to strike Hunter, however, I struck Malcolm myself, in time to stop what would have been a dreadful blow. Malcolm whirled around and saw that it was I who hit him. I struck him five times in the face, but he did nothing but back off the gallery. I struck him once again when he reached the outside and kicked him off the gallery. I thought I had him whipped, but when he got up, he said he would fight me if I would put my six-shooter off. He was a stout man and weighed about 230 pounds, but I was not afraid of him. I removed my six-shooter and threw it over to Henry Cronk, the druggist, and told him to look out for it. I then pitched into Malcolm again, striking him in the face. He suddenly threw his big arm around my neck and pressed my head against his body. I could not get my head free without breaking my neck, and, having the advantage of me in that respect, he commenced beating my head, nose, and eyes until my face looked like jelly. I do not know what would have become of my face if Bob Ward, the company's lawyer, had not come to my rescue. Ward knocked Malcolm loose from me and knocked him twelve feet from where we were clinched. Tom Lawson then knocked Ward down, he falling on top of Malcolm. Hunter was pacing around after Lawson with a heavy rock, but never did get in his lick. When a carpenter, who was working nearby, saw the dangerous position that I was in when Malcolm had me clinched, he ran to my rescue with a hatchet in his hand. He was frightened and as pale as death, and he intended to cut Malcolm loose with his hatchet, but Ward got in ahead of him and did the work for him. My face was in a terrible fix, and the doctor put a beefsteak on it to draw the blood out of the bruised places. My face was so badly bruised and swollen that one could hardly tell where my eyes and nose were. I had a girl then, whom I was loving very dearly, and I could not go to see her for a long time on account of the sad condition of my complexion. I shunned her everywhere for quite a while, for I well knew that it would never do to let Betty see me in that fix. I went to the Justice of Peace the next morning after the fight and paid my fine, which amounted to $12. The money was paid back to me by Colonel Hunter. Hunter, Ward, Malcolm, and Lawson all fought their cases hard, but it cost them about $200 apiece before they were through, while the fight only cost me $12, and the money was refunded to me. Chapter 11. Water Spout at Canal. On the fourth day of June... 1891, one of the hardest rains that I ever experienced began falling in Kanaw at noon and lasted all the afternoon and throughout that night. I knew that the rain was going to do lots of damage if it kept up, so I resolved to go down to the railroad bridge before the northbound passenger train arrived to see if the dam was in good condition. I held my watch in my hand, and when it was nearly time for the train to arrive, I walked down to the bridge where the passenger was to cross. I stood near the railroad tank until the train came in, but it was raining so hard that I could not see the smoke from the engine as the train came down the track. The passenger arrived on time and stopped on the east side of the tank to take water while I was on the west side examining the dam. I soon saw that the dam was giving way, so I waded into the tank and attracted the attention of the engineer. He could not hear what I was saying, so he left his engine and waded in the tank close enough to me to understand what I had to say. I told him that the dam was breaking, but he did not see any signs of it from where he was, and, thinking that I was unduly excited, he decided that I was mistaken, and, going back to his engine, he reversed the throttle and prepared to cross the bridge. About that time the dam broke and was swiftly washed away to the other side. The engineer stopped his engine just in time to save the train from going across the dam and being thrown overboard. 
Nearly 400 passengers, including many women and children, were on the train, and they seemed to be very grateful to me for the part that I played in saving their lives. The train crew were also thankful that they did not get any further than they did before the accident occurred. When the dam broke, the railroad bridges, the county bridge, two or three houses, and a number of windmills were all washed away. Several other rivers in that part of the state got on a rampage, and quite a number of county and railroad bridges, besides those around Kanawha, were destroyed. Chapter 12. Five People Beg for Food While doing duty as a policeman in the state capitol building in Austin in 1903, I boarded at the Capitol Hotel. One cold, rainy day I left the table after eating my dinner and discovered two ladies and three children standing at the screen door on the outside. I asked them what they wanted, and they said they had sent a little boy in there with a note asking for money enough to get dinner for all five of them. They said they were awful hungry. The little boy came out in a minute and said he had seen all those men in the dining room, but they would not give him a cent. The little fellow, who was about four years of age, had tears in his eyes and looked as if he was sentenced to his death. A baby boy had gone into the dining room, filled with men drawing their five dollars a day, and hadn't procured enough money to feed himself. His mother and the elder lady, who was about 65 years of age, said, well, I guess we'll have to go, but we are awful hungry. I told them to sit down in the sitting room, that I was going to see that they got something to eat. I saw the proprietor and got him to prepare a table for the five people. I then carried the poor people into the dining room and seated them around the table. I went to the waiters and told them to give those people something of everything they had and plenty of it. The waiters carefully and courteously attended to their wants, and the ladies and the children ate to their heart's content. I never felt happier in my life than I did when I watched them enjoy that meal. When they got through eating, they asked me if it would be any harm for them to carry the scraps away for their supper. Well, I told them that it was no harm at all, and I went to work at once and rustled up the biggest paper sack in the house for them, and told them to take everything they could find, which they did. After dinner, they went into the sitting room and sat around the stove to warm themselves and rest, as they were quite weary. They thanked me over and over for what I had done for them, and the old lady asked God to bless me for what she called my act of kindness, and asked him to bless all my efforts in life. The boys were too small to know what all this meant, and they sat on the floor, their hunger appeased, and laughed and played. This was a sad sight to me, and when the women began crying, I could not keep the tears from my own eyes. These unfortunate people were from the country, and boll weevils and other things had destroyed their crops for two years and left them destitute. They were in such a pitiful plight that I was thankful that I was able to aid them, and that dollar twenty-five that I gave for their dinner did me more good and furnished me more happiness than any other sum of money I ever spent. Chapter 13 The Murder of Hartman I was ordered by the governor in 1890 to go to San Saba as district court was to convene there and the presence of Texas Rangers in that town was greatly needed, for the people of that district were divided into two opposing factions and the bitterness that existed between them had become intense. Since 1880, San Saba had been the center of a disturbance caused by the organization of a mob whose operations extended into several other counties in that district. In other words, a number of people had banded together to protect themselves against the depredations of cattle thieves and other criminals who were numerous in that part of the state. A number of people lived in that district who had no regard for law and order, 
and stole so many cattle, horses, and hogs, that the people became harassed, and decided to take the law into their own hands, and punish the guilty parties as they saw fit, and for this reason the club, afterward referred to as the mob, was organized. The lawless element, of course, arrayed themselves against the mob faction. Many good people also lined up against it, as they did not believe in mob spirit, and thought the law should be allowed to take its course. Thus a strong organization, called the anti-mob, grew into activity and bitterly opposed the other faction. The mob faction, however, was the stronger of the two sides in numbers and influence, and in San Saba County, their greatest stronghold, they elected one of their men sheriff. The mob did some good work for a while, but, like all organizations of that character, it finally went too far, and became more oppressive as it grew in power. Quite a number of bad citizens were slick enough to slip over to the stronger faction, the mob element, and, as they did so, they played a big part in changing the purpose and power of that organization from good to bad. When the mob was first organized, it began to put down lawlessness, but in 1890, ten years later, the bitter feeling that existed between the mob and anti-mob factions had reached such a high pitch that there was much fighting and disorder. Lawlessness was encouraged by both sides and could not be prevented by local authorities. Killings became rather frequent occurrences, and thieves took advantage of the numerous opportunities and stole livestock without fear of prosecution. Thus the criminal docket was full of important cases, but the prosecuting attorney could not go about his work unless he was given protection by the state. So the governor sent me, as I have stated before, to San Saba to help them hold court. Red Murphy and Tom Platt, also rangers, were with me, and we arrived at San Saba on the following Sunday about noon. After eating dinner at the hotel, we walked up the street and found the town full of men, as court was to convene the next morning. The men were sitting or standing around in groups of twelve or fifteen, and were discussing with some fervor the convening of court. They had come to town to see that things were run to suit them when court opened, and they meant business, for the stores were full of their guns and ammunition which they had brought with them. While passing one group, we heard a man inquire who we were, and another man replied that we were Texas Rangers, whereupon they all laughed, some of them remarking that if we ever got three miles out of town, we would never live to get back. We heard the remark, but paid no attention to it. On the following Tuesday night, someone came to the hotel where we were staying and asked the proprietor, Jim Darfmeyer, if the Texas Rangers were not staying with him. Darfmeyer told them that we were, and the visitor asked him to call us, which he did. When we got downstairs, we met Nat Hartman, whose home was on the Colorado River. He seemed very anxious about something and informed us that his brother, Ed Hartman, was missing and that he feared he had been killed. The Hartmans were members of the anti-mob faction, and Nat Hartman told us that this was the first time in nine years that his brother had been outside of his house after sundown. We told him that we would go by and get Sheriff Howard and commence looking for his brother. Nat objected to us getting Howard. We told him that we would have to have the sheriff with us, so we went by and called for Howard, who joined us in the search. We reached the home of Nat Hartman's father a little before day, and just before sunrise we left Hartman's house and started down the river, the way they claimed Ed went off the day before at one o'clock. We walked about three-quarters of a mile and found the dead body of the man for whom we were searching lying in the bed of the river. We traced two men's tracks from the body to a house sixty steps away where a Mr. Campbell, one of Howard's deputy sheriffs, lived. Campbell was out in the yard when he saw us coming, 
but he started in a fast walk to the house when he discovered us. We stopped him before he got very far, but he said something to his wife, who was standing in the doorway, and she whirled back into the building, returning in a second or two with something in her hand, which she held under her apron. We were satisfied that she had his six-shooter, and we ordered her not to go near her husband. She then went back into the house. We arrested Campbell and his two sons, Mech and Dave, and five other men in his neighborhood. We reached San Saba with them a little after dark that evening, and locked them up in the little house that Darfmeyer let us have for that night. We did not let them sleep together, and kept them from talking with each other, so that they would not make medicine. About an hour or two before day, Campbell asked me to let him get up and sit by the stove. I told him that would be all right, and he came over and began talking to me. He ran his hand over his face and said his face was paining him. He also claimed that his mule pitched him off a day or two before that and threw him into a rough place, bruising his face up badly. He said he couldn't understand what was the matter with his mule, that he used to be a good mule, but had acted mighty strangely of late. He then claimed that the mule had also thrown one of his boys recently and bruised his face up considerable. The next morning, we had all eight of the men up before the grand jury. Campbell testified before the grand jury that a little gray mare had fallen down with him in a rough place and bruised his face. Another man before the grand jury testified that a dun mare had fallen down with Campbell 12 miles further up the river. They made such conflicting statements in trying to get out of trouble that the grand jury indicted Dave Campbell and his father for the murder of Ed Hartman. Dave Campbell jumped his bond and was caught seven years later in Arizona, where he was living under the name of Alex Miller, and was brought back to San Saba, but he was acquitted. Old man Campbell got a change of venue to Fort Mason, and was convicted and sentenced to seven and a half years in the penitentiary, but appealed his case. He was tried sixteen times in eight years, and finally got off on a light sentence of two and a half years, and went to the penitentiary from Lampasas to serve it out. I had to go to court twice a year for eight years to testify in that case. Mr. Hartman, the father of the murder man, is now dead, but he lived to fight the case for eight long years and finally heard the sentence read to Campbell. In fighting the case, he spent every dollar he had and sold his farm and home and stock in order to keep up the prosecution, and when he died at the age of 77 years, he was renting land. He had remained faithful to his son to the last. Chapter 14. The Chase After Del Dean When I Break My Arm and Ankle While court was in session at San Saba, Del Dean, an alleged horse thief, was notified that he had been indicted by the grand jury for stealing livestock. Dean at once mounted his horse and left town. Sheriff Hawkins asked me to capture Dean, saying that Dean had just left town, going out on the Lano Road. I mounted my horse and started out in pursuit. Riding fast, I soon came inside of Dean, who was urging his horse to the utmost speed. I clamped spurs to my horse and commenced to gain still more on Dean, and for some time we kept up a hot race. It was mist and snow, and the weather was raw and cold. I was going downhill as fast as my horse could run, when he suddenly struck a flat table rock and let his feet slip from under him. He fell, and I was thrown twenty-three feet from the saddle. My horse was running so fast when he fell that it was remarkable that I was not killed. When my horse and I took that sudden stop, I fell into a pile of rocks, and my head was badly bruised, my face terribly lacerated, my right arm broken, and my ankle sprained. Dean, of course, made his escape, 
and I do not think that he saw my horse fall with me. I was badly crippled up, and was treated by doctors George and John Sanderson, brothers, for four to six days. It was two years before I had any strength in my right hand and arm. I learned to shoot left-handed, and when my right arm got strong again, I could shoot as well with one hand as I could the other. Dean was captured by Edgar T. Nail after the latter became sheriff of San Saba County. When I went back to San Saba, I went to the jail and saw Dean. All the prisoners shook hands with me except Dean. He had turned out his beard, and I could not place him, so I asked him his name. He said, I am Dale Dean, the man whom you went pursuing when you broke your arm, and for that reason I thought probably you would not want to speak to me. I assured him that he was mistaken, that I had no ill feeling toward him at all. I told him that while it was my duty to pursue him, it was natural for him to try to escape, and that I did not blame him with the accident. I told him that I felt sorry for him because he was in jail, and hoped he would lead a better life when he got free again. Chapter 15. The Capture and Escape of Morris, the Noted Murderer In 1891, there lived in the little town of Vernon one Jim Morris and the two Moss brothers, who left together during that year for Greer County, where the three men were to take up land. The two Moss brothers had between them about five or six hundred dollars, which fact was known to Morris when the three left Vernon together. After reaching Salt Fork, which is in Greer County, they pitched camp to rest up a bit. While there, Morris and one of the Moss boys walked out a mile or so from the wagon to kill some game. After being gone a little while, Morris suddenly turned his gun on Moss and fired, killing him instantly. After burying the dead body in a sand hill, he went back to camp and told the other Moss boy that his brother had sent back for him and the wagon, as he had found a much better place to camp, and for him to hitch up and bring everything to the new stopping place. There happened to be two cowpunchers at the camp at this time who heard the conversation. Moss was sick, and when the two left, as Moss supposed, for the new camping place, he lay down in the bottom of the wagon, with his head near Morris, who was driving. Ignorant of the terrible fate that had just overtaken his brother a little while before, Moss unsuspectingly put his hat over his face so he could rest easier, with the sun's rays thus kept from his eyes. Morris took advantage of this opportunity and shot and killed the sick man, the bullet passing through his hat and blowing his brains out. He then threw the body out of the wagon and buried it in a nearby sand hill, exactly as he had disposed of the remains of the other man. Besides getting all of their money, he kept one of their watches and also the coat which he took from his first victim. This coat had a bullet hole through the back, indicating the manner in which the man had been slain. Among other things found in the coat was a note which Moss had written to a young lady asking her for her company to church. The lady had accepted his invitation, according to this note, which had slipped into the lining through a worn-out pocket. When this murder occurred, I was stationed in Canna. At that time, there was no jail at Mangum, where we caught Morris, so we placed the prisoner in the calaboose. But as there was strong talk of lynching him, the officers removed him to Canna, where he was safely landed in the county jail. He was kept there about two years, and was closely guarded a greater part of that time by some of the rangers. He was tried on two indictments for murder, and was sentenced to hang in both cases. He appealed his case, however, and got a new trial, but the jury again brought in a verdict of death. He became very desperate, and was a hard man to keep imprisoned. One night during his trial, 
while being guarded by Bob Dawson, a constable of that county, he picked his shackles with a writing pan and broke away. In escaping, he jumped from a two-story window and was at large three days and nights before he was recaptured and placed in jail. Morris kept us mighty busy before he was found, and when we did get him, we took him in a few days to Fort Worth for safekeeping until the day of his execution. But he succeeded in breaking away from that place also, and never has been captured nor located since. At the time of his escape, Morris was 27 years of age, tall, broad-shouldered, and very handsome. One morning at sunrise, while in the break searching for Morris, we looked up the draw which led into Pease River and saw a fire. Thinking we would find our game, we at once surrounded the place where we saw the fire and smoke, but found instead an escaped convict. With him was a woman dressed in man's clothes. Her hair was cropped short, and on her heels she wore a pair of pet-maker spurs. She also wore a California suit of clothes, a Stetson hat, a shop-made pair of boots, and a blue shirt and necktie. She was a Mistress Jenny Bates, and was stolen away from her home in Palo Pinto County by this convict. We took from her a forty-five Colts six-shooter, a Winchester, and a scabbard belt full of cartridges. The woman, who weighed nearly a 135 pounds, looked to be about 25 years of age and a little over five feet tall. With black hair and dark eyes, she appeared to be a good-looking man. The couple had stolen four head of horses, so we put them in jail at Canna. The convict had escaped from the penitentiary after serving five years of a ten-year sentence for horse-stealing. He was tried in Canna for his latest thefts and sent back to the penitentiary to finish serving his first sentence with an addition of five years for his last crime. The woman got a change of venue from Canna to Vernon and came clear. The ladies of Vernon felt sorry for her and dressed her up in woman's clothing. Mrs. Wheeler was the only white woman I ever arrested. Mr. J. M. Britton, a ranger, aided in making the capture. Chapter 16. The Arrest of Hollingsworth I received a warrant from Austin in 1891 to arrest O. N. Hollingsworth. He was then living 18 miles west of Canna and 7 miles south of Kirkland. Pick Gibson, the sheriff, and Lon Lewis went with me after Mr. Hollingsworth. Hollingsworth knew Lon Lewis and Sheriff Gibson, but he had never seen me. So when we got within a half mile of Mr. Hollingsworth's house, they proposed that I go down to the house and see if he was there, saying that if he was, they would come on in a short time and for me to remain until they arrived there. They told me not to try to arrest him, for they were pretty well satisfied since the old man's case was a bad one, that he would more than likely make a fight. When I rode up to the gate, I called out to the people, it being after dark, and a young man, who looked to be about seventeen years old, came out. I asked him if he had seen a man pass there riding a gray horse and leading a black, or riding a black and leading a gray. I told him that this man was about six feet two and one half inches tall, and had red curly hair and a heavy red mustache. I said that I wanted this man in Baylor County for the theft of these two horses. He said that he had not seen the man nor the horses. He asked me then to get down and spend the night with them. I told him that as my horse and I were very badly jaded, I would like to stay there that night. I asked him if I would be imposing on the family, and inquired if his father and mother were at home. He said that they were in the house, and I told them that I would stay. I led my horse up through the gate, and he remarked, Let's go and put your horse up. I told him that I would have to have a drink of water before I put my horse up, that I was nearly dying with thirst. The water barrel was sitting right in front of the door, 
and I could see it in the light. He insisted very much on me putting my horse up before I got the water, but I could see the old man standing in the door, and I was satisfied that he would step out in the dark and I would fail to see him that night, as the lot was on the other side, in the rear. I went on up to the front door and spoke to the old gentleman and took a drink of water. Then I asked the old gentleman if his name was Hollingsworth. He said it was. I said, I have papers for you, Mr. Hollingsworth. Where are they from, he asked. From Austin. Well, all right, he said. I turned my horse over to the young man and told him to hitch him. Then I stepped into the building, and the old gentleman and I sat down. Mrs. Hollingsworth was reading a book and never looked up nor spoke to me for twenty minutes, and when she did, she asked if I had been to supper. I told her that I had eaten some cheese and crackers that I had with me. She said, you had better let me go and fix something for you. I have plenty cooked. I insisted that she not put herself to any trouble, but she went anyway and fixed the table. I am satisfied that Mrs. Hollingsworth thought that I would leave her husband in the house while I went to eat. That would have given the old gentleman a chance to make his escape. So, when I started out, I told him to go out ahead of me. This little eating house was about twenty steps from the main building that we were in. I ate supper, and we went back to the dwelling and seated ourselves. The old gentleman commenced crying and started to the bureau where there was a double-barrel shotgun and a Winchester, one on each side. He was halfway to the bureau when the thought struck me that he might make a bad play with those guns, being stirred up as he was and crying, so I halted him and told him to come back and take his seat. He told me that he only wanted to get the hairbrush and brush his hair and beard, but I told him that he could do that in the morning. About that time, Gibson and Lewis came up, and I was very glad to see them. I had been looking for them for some time, for they told me that if I did not return, they would come to me in a half hour, as they would know that he was at home, but it was all of an hour and a half before they came to me. They put their horses up, and Mrs. Hollinsworth began to fix beds for all of us. This building had only one room. It was cut back in a hill and planked up on each side and in front, making a comfortable house. Mrs. Hollingsworth made us a pallet in the front part of the building. She and her husband slept in the back, and there was a curtain in the center of the house that cut them off from the others. She told me that I could lie down and rest easy, that she would be responsible for her husband, that there was no way for him to escape. I noticed two windows in the back part of the building, so I told Mrs. Hollingsworth that I made it a point to guard all prisoners, and for her and her family to fix and lie down, and I would pull the curtains back so we could guard the old gentleman. It was seven miles from there to Kirkland, and eighteen miles from Kirkland to Canna, so we ate breakfast the next morning, and got off in time to meet the southbound train at Kirkland. Mr. Hollinsworth's boy took him in the buggy to Kirkland. When we reached Kirkland, Pitt Gibson, the sheriff, took him to Canna on the train, and Lon Lewis and I rode through horseback. When Mr. Hollinsworth separated from his wife and two or three little girls, it was such a sad scene to witness that I never will forget it. His wife clung to his neck, and those sweet little girls held to his arms and legs. I thought I never would get away from the sound of his wife's and children's screams. This was, indeed, a sad morning to me, and the family had my deepest sympathy. When we reached Canna, I learned at our camp that Pitt Gibson had turned Mr. Hollinsworth over to the rangers, and he remained at our camp three days and nights before we sent him to Austin. While at camp, eating our grub, I asked the old gentleman one day if he would like to have a hotel dinner. He said he would, so I took him to the Canna Hotel and gave him a good dinner. He asked me to walk upstairs with him, 
and he showed me some pictures of Jersey Chaos and Chaos which were hanging on the wall. They were beautiful, and he told me that his grown daughters had drawn them. He cried and said, Sullivan, I am no thief. My children overdrew on me. They were high livers, and they got me behind with the state. That is the reason you have me arrested. Hollinsworth was then about sixty-five years old, very straight and erect, and fine-looking, and was highly educated. I am satisfied that he was no thief, but his children were expensive in their way of living, and caused him to fall behind and make this great mistake with the state. When he got into this trouble, he was holding an office in Austin. Before that, he taught school and bore a good name. He gave bond in Austin, but jumped it and made his escape. His wife sold her home, and his two daughters sold theirs, a section of land apiece, and paid the bond off. I have never heard of Hollinsworth since. Chapter 17 The Capture of Mays, the Noted Horse Thief While stationed at Canna, Texas, I was notified one evening by Colonel Rush that Doc James, alias Doc Mays, a noted horse thief, was camping near Canna, and that he was stealing cattle and horses throughout that part of the country. Colonel Rush had just arrived in Canna on the train from Colorado City. He told me that he had two herds of cattle near Canna that had been driven in from Colorado City by his hands. As Mays was wanted in seven counties, I thought I had better make good work of him, so I took Frank Hofer, a ranger, and Bob Collier, a deputy sheriff, and started after this cattle thief. I at once went north with them to Grosbeck River, about five miles out of town, where I found a herd of cattle. I asked the man who had charge of the cattle if that herd belonged to Colonel Rush. He replied that they did not, that Rush's herd was south of the Fort Worth and Denver Road, so I bade him goodbye and started south. When I got to the railroad, I met two ladies in a buggy going west up the track. I looked around, and about five miles south of the track I saw the herd, but I was satisfied that these ladies were going up the track to another herd, and, thinking that the cattle west of us were Rush's, I pled with Bob Collier to go with me, and we would follow the ladies. I was afraid that the ladies would inform Mays that the officers were around, and told Bob that that was why I wanted to go up the track then. But Bob was hard-headed and would not go with us, so we turned and ran our horses to the herd that was directly south of us, and made the five miles in a little while. When I reached the herd, I saw a man sitting on a big black horse. I asked him if this was Colonel Rush's herd, and he said, No, Rush's herd is at Canna, at the railroad tank watering. I knew that was a lie, for I had not been away from Canna more than three quarters of an hour, as I had been riding fast all the time. I rode around the herd and asked one of the hands, a Mexican, if he could tell me where either one of Colonel Rush's herds was. In reply, he pointed west the direction in which the two ladies were going, and said, Yonder is the herd on that high divide about five miles from here. Then I was somewhat vexed, when I remembered that Bob would not consent to us following the buggy a little while before. Although our horses were hot and tired, I told Bob and Frank to put theirs beside mine, and we would run them over to the other herd. I told Bob that since he had acted such a fool and caused this trouble, I would make him kill that horse of his, so we laid the steel to our horses and pulled for that other five-mile heat. We had arrived within three-quarters of a mile from May's camp, and the herders had failed to see us, as we were in a flat covered with mesquite timber, and they were at the top of a hill right on the divide. The two ladies, whom we had seen going up the track, had reported to them that we were coming. A man, calling himself Jackson, was sent at once to the wagon at their camp to inform May's that we were coming, 
but he did not get to deliver his message. As we were nearing the divide, Jackson ran his horse into us at full speed. I stopped him and asked him where he was going. He replied that he was going to camp to change horses. I told him that his horse didn't seem to be very tired from the way he was moving out. I then put him under arrest and told him to tell me the truth. I want a fellow, I said, by the name of Doc James, alias Doc Mays, and don't you tell me anything but the truth. Is he with the herd, or is he at camp? He replied that he was at the camp. I asked him how far it was to the camp. He said it was about a mile and a half. I then told him to put his horse beside mine and take me the nearest way to camp. When I got within 800 yards of their camp, I saw the same man who I had met sitting on the black horse at the other herd five miles away. He was the one who had told me such a story about Bush's cattle being in Canna, watering at the railroad tank. He also had a message to deliver to Mays about us, and had run his horse fast enough to beat us a minute or two, but too late to give Mays sufficient time to get away. We saw him rush up to the wagon and tell Mays that we were coming. Mays sprang up and, in a stooping position, went in a trot to his saddle, about thirty yards away, and pulled his Winchester out of the scabbard. The man on the black horse immediately put spurs to his steed and left for his herd. When I saw Mays making for his Winchester, I thought I could rush in and get him before he reached it. I had no more use for Jackson, so I told Bob and Frank, both, to follow me and let him go. I then spurred my horse up and went straight for Mays, with Bob following me. Bob, however, had told Frank to stay behind and guard Jackson, which was not my wish, and Frank did what Bob had requested him to do. Bob stayed with me about 300 yards and then dropped behind, and when I had gotten within 200 yards of Mays, I heard him, Bob, yelling at me to hold up. I had gone too far by this time to turn back, so I paid no attention to Bob, but kept jerking cat hair out of my horse's sides. When I had gotten within 60 yards of the wagon, Mays yelled to me that he would kill me if I crowded him any more. About that time, my horse became frightened at some blankets hanging out on a mesquite bush, and commenced jumping a thousand ways a second, but I kept pulling for the wagon. Mays had gotten behind the wagon, and was at this time sitting by the wheels with his Winchester at his shoulder. When I saw him, and remembered his reputation as a fine shot and a dangerous man, I said to myself, I am a dead man. I jumped my horse over the wagon tongue, which placed me within six feet of Mays. I sat my horse down, and pointed my gun at Mays and told him to surrender. He said he would. I ordered him to throw his Winchester on the ground, which he did. I searched him for his six-shooter and picked his Winchester up. About that time, Bob Collier, the deputy sheriff, came up. Mays asked me why I crowded him as I did. If I had had my Winchester loaded, he said, you would have been in hell right now. This is the first time in 14 years that the magazine of my rifle has ever been empty. I asked him how it came to be empty then. He replied that one of the boys had gone out to shoot rabbits a little while before that and emptied the magazine and had forgotten to reload it. Then I asked him if his name was Mays, and he replied that it was. I asked him if James would not suit him better, but he only smiled. I then asked him if he had a horse. He replied that he had a little old soreback cow pony. About that time Frank Hofer came up, bringing Jackson with him. I scolded Frank a little bit about staying with Jackson instead of coming with me as I had requested him to. I told Jackson to go with Frank and get May's horse, which he did, returning in a few minutes. I found that May's had lied. 
His little sore-back cow pony was a thoroughbred racehorse and as pretty as a peach. I handcuffed Mays and took his bridle reins. Then I tied a rope around his animal's neck and wrapped the other end around the horn of my saddle and let Mays mount his horse. After we started off, Mays asked me to let him have the reins, as his horse traveled so badly when he did not have reins in his hands. I had a suspicion that he intended to attempt to make his escape, so I did not grant his request. I put him in the county jail at Canna. He was wanted at Weatherford for horse theft. He was sentenced to the penitentiary for nine years, was tried again in Colorado City, and sentenced for an additional nine years. He was wanted in five more counties, but did not answer for the other charges. After serving six years of his term of nine years, he was pardoned out of the penitentiary by Governor Culberson. End chapters 10 through 17.